At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. I just kept saying, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I, I, I don't want to die. You guys, welcome back to another episode of Infertility and Me podcast. I am your host, Monique Farouk, IVF mom to one, women's health advocate, Thank you for being here with me. Thank you for letting me be a part of your day. If this is your very first time, welcome, 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 welcome to the shit show that is infertility. Sorry that you're here, but I'm glad that you came and you're getting the hope, inspiration, and community that you need on today, whatever you're listening. Happy freaking Thanksgiving. If you guys celebrate, many of you probably do, I'm sure, or will take this day of relaxation to revive, recuperate relax, not feel guilty about eating pie and carbs and all those good things, right? So I'm holding space for you guys and sending my love as we swiftly move into the holiday season and swiftly moving out of 2022. Thank you guys for being here. And I'm so glad and so honored that you chose to be here with us. Today, we'll be speaking to Jenny Lowe, Jenny was diagnosed with stage 3 ovarian cancer while going through her first round of IVF after four cycles of IUIs. At this time, Jenny was just 34 years old. And during the time of getting diagnosed with ovarian cancer, she also tested positive for the BRCA BRCA gene mutation. Now, the BRCA 1 and 2 gene mutations are genes that produce proteins that help repair damaged DNA. Everyone has two copies of these genes, one inherited from each parent, sometimes called tumor suppressor genes because when they have certain changes called harmful pathogenic variants or mutations, cancer can easily, more easily I should say, develop with people who test positive for the gene mutations. And so Jenny tells us about the process of getting diagnosed with that, as well as the ovarian cancer after going through the four cycles of IUI. She goes into grave detail about her surgery when her doctor removed the cancer, as well as removing various body parts, more than a few that the cancer had spread into, but it began in the ovaries. And she tells us every detail about that, how she was feeling moving through it, and Through all of these things that Jenny has been through, she is starting to raise awareness, and so she wrote a book. She wrote a memoir, and it's called Saved by Hope, which is also the name of her daughter. And so Jenny has a lot to share with us today. This episode is packed full of information. If you are someone or you know someone struggling with reproductive cancer and how fertility is preserved or how it could be preserved in these instances. Here's our girl, Jenny. All right, you guys, we are back with our girl, Jenny. Thank you so much, my dear, for coming on the show, giving us your time and offering your story of hope and inspiration. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm very excited to be here and talk to you and honored that you are willing to take the time to do so. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's my absolute pleasure. And so, you guys, I was telling you in the intro, Jenny had a wild ride to momhood. Um, Some would even say it was at times very sad and heartbreaking as well. But, Jenny, we're going to start off on a lighter note. We're going to find out how you and hubby met. How did that all go down? Yeah, well, my husband's name is James, and we are coming up on six years of marriage in October, so that's great. But we actually met in 2009. He was a Starbucks barista, 
at a Starbucks that I frequented and we just made eyes across the room, you know, and I, I wish I could say it was like this romantic, I, he wrote his number on the cup or something, but I just walked up and was like, hey, we should hang out sometime. <laughs> and then we did. <laughs> Super cute, super cute. You're, you're. I think you're our first um, coffee shop type of love story. We've had a couple of tenders uh-huh, here and there, uh-huh. so you're our first Starbucks. Everybody loves Starbucks, okay? Yeah, it's surprising. Thank I'm you. surprised that for there's not us. more. Yeah. You guys have been married for how long before the discussion of children starts to come up? Um, I'm sure you talked about it during dating. And stuff, yeah. Too. Well, we had been married about a year. Um, we we dated for about five years, and then we we were married for about a year and decided that that was when we wanted to start trying to have a baby late 2017 that we started uh that I stopped taking birth control to purposefully try to start having a baby yeah so when did you guys get start getting concerned how far along into trying to conceive naturally we were it was about 6 months about so it was like into the middle of 2018 that we decided well, I went to my doctor and he recommended that I seek out fertility, a fertility specialist. And that was mostly because of my age, because at the time I was 33. And as we know, in the world of, of fertility, you know, it's kind of sucks to be like, I'm 33. I feel young and fresh and whatever. And they're like, oh, your eggs are dying and shriveling and you, you need to go see somebody so it was about six months, which I, I also felt lucky because I do know that a lot of couples, they can't even see a fertility specialist until they've been trying for at least a year, um, if not longer. And I had friends and I knew people in my circle that that had been the case. So I did feel very lucky that I was able, my doctor, you know, suggested it and I was able to start fertility treatment after just six months of trying naturally. Wow. So did you guys move into the IUI stage first before moving into IVF? You know, we were presented with both options. We did just some of the first fertility tests and we found out that James had his, he just had the morphology. Yeah. So he was producing enough. It's just that the shape was a little, was causing a problem. And they were able to determine that I was producing a less than average amount of eggs for someone my age. So, so we knew we had that against us. They said we could try a couple of IUI attempts. Um, my doctor said if by the third time, by the third attempt, if you don't get pregnant, then we strongly suggest moving on to IVF. And But he also did say he thought IVF would be the best option to start with, just with what we had going against us naturally. The disparity in cost, like the difference in how much an IUI is versus how much IVF is, I, it just really seemed like a no-brainer. Like, we're going to try a couple of mm-hmm. IUIs because if we can get pregnant and not have to pay the astronomical amount to do IVF, we want to do that. So we did move forward with, um, we, we completed four IV, IUI attempts and all of which were not successful. And so did you guys go straight into getting further testing next or did you take some time to breathe a little, you know? Yeah, we we just took a month off where at the, it was the end of the year of 2018 in December. We decided in that month we weren't going to do anything and we were just going to start fresh in 2019 with the IVF. And so in 2019, in January, we like right in the middle of January, we began our first cycle with of the IVF treatment. Okay. And they didn't find anything during your pre-testing before IVF? They didn't find anything in your tubes or uterus or anything? No, everything. I mean, I'd had all of the traditional scans, um, all of my, you know, my yearly paps had come back normal. Like there, there was nothing that caused concern except for there was the knowledge that I was BRCA1, the genetic mutation BRCA1 positive. And what that means is everybody has the BRCA genes from your parents. And what they do is they, those specific genes fight cells that could potentially turn into cancer and they actually like kill them. And so BRCA is actually a good gene to have. It's when you have the mutation, the mutation causes your 
gene, the BRCA genes to not work against any like fast growing cancer cells. And so my doctors knew that I was BRCA positive or BRCA, the genetic mutation, BRCA1 mutation positive. And they, they were concerned because adding um, hormones, cancer, cancerous cells can feed off of estrogen, progesterone, all of the hormones that you do inject into your body during a cycle of IVF. They knew that and they were a little concerned about what that could mean for a future child. But after a lot of back and forth and just conversations with James and I, we, we decided that we felt that risk was worth taking, just knowing that advances in science and, and cancer treatment, it's like, it wasn't a guarantee our child would get that genetic mutation. And it, there were just a lot of things we were like, no, we're, we feel fine to move forward. And so that was the only thing that uh, caused them a little bit of concern, but it was nothing else like in a scan or in a, in an image or an ultrasound that they were able to see. So we did the 14 days of injections and because you are going in and having vaginal ultrasounds so frequently during IVF so that they can count your follicles and measure them and kind of see where you are on the track to the, the day of egg extraction. Um, they, I was just in the office so frequently and because of the vaginal ultrasound, I think that played a huge part in it because you think about cancer, like getting your yearly pap and you think that that's going to be enough, but it, it's just not a thorough enough testing in my opinion. I'll just, I'll keep moving forward. But as they were measuring my follicles, my doctor uh, noticed some kind of fuzzy images on my ovaries. And he first thought they were fibroids, which are just uh, non-cancerous cysts in your ovaries or uterus. And, you know, he didn't, he, he said, well, just monitor them, see if the fuzziness changes, if, if it gets worse, better, whatever. And so on the day, like the last day, my last exam before the egg extraction, he said, you know, I really have felt unsettled about this and I would really like you to speak to a colleague of mine who's a gynecological oncologist. And that kind of threw me a little bit because I, you know, you hear the word oncologist and it's a little bit scary. Not a little bit. It's scary. Yeah. yeah. It's scary as hell. Yeah. yeah. And so they said, you know, we're, we'll move forward with your egg extraction because they saw five, you know, they saw the follicles and they saw they saw about 10 follicles that they figured they would be able to extract. So I went through with that procedure. I, they only retrieved, they were only able to retrieve three eggs. The other follicles were empty. And I was upset about that because, you know, I hear all these people who go through IVF and get more eggs and you just, you expect more expect more from my body. I expect more from myself. (laughs) And like, it, it was just, disappointing. And then two of them were able to fertilize. So we had these two embryos. The day after my egg extraction, I went in and met this oncologist and she tried to just do a vaginal exam, but I was still really swollen. She couldn't see anything because obviously it was like in my ovaries. And so she had an MRI ordered. I, you know, so within the 48 hours, I was, I got under anesthesia and had an egg extraction. And then the next day I'm in having a vaginal exam and then an MRI. And it was just a lot of stuff happening all at once. And all this time too, I was really hoping we'd be able to still do a fresh transfer in that five day window. So it was really important to me that I got all of these exams and stuff done and tucked away, you know, just, okay, I want to make sure I'm okay, but we're going to be fine. We're just going to move on. And so she advised after the MRI, she still, she's like, I really don't, can't get a very clear picture of what I'm looking at. So I, I think we should do a laparoscopic biopsy. And that's just, you know, where they cut little incisions in your belly and go through with the camera and, and see, see what's going on. And so she advised not to have us do a fresh transfer, which, you know, is very deflating. And I was like, all right, like, here's just more waiting that we have to do. And it's already all this waiting we've done up to this point. And it's very discouraging to go through that. So I, you know, I was able to get through a full cycle, but then kind of things, that's where things kind of took a turn. 
so we were getting daily updates about our embryos and three days in we found out and uh, I think it was four days four days in we found out that our one of the two that were growing was just not progressing so it it was considered unviable so here we have this one embryo left and we're just like on pins and needles waiting to find out if it's gonna go if it's gonna grow and, and be viable so the day so less than a week it was six days after my egg retrieval i was at the hospital really early in the morning after a huge snowstorm waiting in the waiting room for to go in and have my biopsy and the fertility clinic calls and this was day five of after the retrieval so we answer the phone we, we step aside out of the waiting room and the, the embryologist says I had to call you the first thing. I just looked at your embryo and it, like it pulled through. This little fighter pulled through and it is viable and we're going to freeze it. And I sent you a picture of it. It's in your inbox. Like it just really great. And we started, we, we just hung up the phone and we were on cloud nine. We were so, so happy that we had gotten this little embryo and we started calling it Embry Low because our last name is Low. Well, Embry Low was just waiting, hanging out. And then I get, you know, an hour later, I get called back, wheeled up, go into the, uh, to the biopsy. And it's, it's about an hour. It take you know, the procedure takes about an hour. Um, so I go under anesthesia. The next thing I remember is waking up and I'm just, you know, coming out of it. I'm very foggy and unsure of what's going on, where I am. And I kind of see a nurse putting things away and hooking me up to machines. And I'm kind of still groggy. And I look to the foot of my bed and my doctor is standing there. And she's talking with the nurse. And I've had enough surgeries and enough coming out of anesthesia moments to know that, like, if your doctor is standing there, it's not a good sign. And it, like, woke me up. Like, it felt like a bucket of cold water. You know, I just suddenly was like... And I, I didn't care that they were in the middle of a conversation. I just was like, did you find something? And she kind of was startled because she didn't realize I had just woken up. And she just kind of ran her hand up my leg as she walked towards me. And she said, yes, yes, dear, it, it's cancer. And it's, there's a lot. And I just lost it. I felt like I had just woken up into a nightmare not from a nightmare i woke up into a nightmare i just started screaming like the poor people around me were like waking up as well so they probably i probably made their experience a little less than ideal coming out of their anesthesia but i was just screaming for james where's james is he here does he know what where is he i need to see him and i just started hyperventilating she's trying to calm me down she you know, puts her hands on my face and says, we're going to beat this. You're, it's okay. So she, she told the nurse, take her down to her room because that's where James was. And I just kept saying, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I, I don't want to die. Like that, that's just like all I could say. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. we get to my room and James immediately stands up as he sees me being wheeled in. And I could just see that he had been crying and he just came up and just hugged me and we just sobbed like I don't think I've ever cried like that and I don't think you know I hope I never will again um mm -hmm. but we just sobbed and it was a pivotal moment yeah it was a pivotal moment I'm sure yeah. in your in your in all of your life so far yeah yeah so how do you feel how did you feel having to tell your family members about your diagnosis, like your mom and close relatives. Yeah, I, my mom had had, when I was in high school, she had had ovarian and breast cancer and she survived and she's still in remission. And that was over 20 years ago. And that is what led me to get tested for the BRCA genetic mutation is because my mom was tested at the time and, and had it. And so she's the one who passed it down uh, to me. And she was very concerned and so when i had to call and tell her about it i think she felt a lot of guilt and she had always said in the past she would feel very guilty if she if any of her children ended up having cancer because of the the gene and um if you know if if any of us got sick and so i think she just felt very sad and 
yeah, I mean, it's, I called all of my siblings. I have three siblings. I called all of them and nobody teaches you how to like reveal that news. And I didn't want to like sugarcoat it and, you know, sit and have a pleasant conversation and then draw, you know, I was just like, I have cancer. You know, I, I you think it got, it would get easier as you tell people that, but it didn't. I mean, it just was, I didn't feel like I was the person talking when I was telling people. And there was just a lot of shock from everyone, friends, family, even though we knew this could be a potential, like nobody really thought that's what would happen. And I was so young Mm -hmm. and just otherwise very healthy. I'd never had health issues or anything. So, I mean, it, it was, it was very hard for it. It was hard for a lot of people. and, And I think that was very touching to me and very humbling that so many people cared you know you you always wonder like who's gonna be there for me who's gonna who will cry for me who Mm -hmm. like I have this morbid thought in the past like who you go to a funeral and there's like a ton of people and you're like I don't even know if I know this many people like well this many people show up for me like and that many people like people showed up and in very surprising ways and it just was very I think when you have the support there's times you don't want it and there's times where you reject it and you say I just need to be on my own and like I don't want your sympathy I don't want your pity even you know and it it can be construed as like pity even though it to them is like sympathy and then there's times where you just like let you just do a fallback and let them catch you you know it's it's an interesting ride to go through. Yeah, I imagine it to be that way because you're feeling so many different things at the same time. Yeah. And moving forward, did you ever think that you become a mom? I was hopeful because of the biopsy that she had said, my doctor had told me she wasn't totally, she wasn't 100% certain how much there was or where exactly it was. So there was a small window of hope for me that I could keep my uterus and that we could possibly do some chemo and then take out the ovaries and then do some more chemo and try to save my uterus so that I could carry our embryo someday. And I think before even going down any other path of how I would become a mother that was different than me carrying the baby, I, I was very set on I'm going to try to keep my uterus and I'm going to try to still have this baby. Like there wasn't really any other option in my mind until we had like a really full picture of what was going to happen. And at her suggestion. So how did they go about that? Yes. I was going to ask you how they went about that, preserving your fertility as well as treating the cancer. Yeah. So her suggestion, I mean, she's my, she said that, it was a very viable treatment to do three rounds of chemo followed by a surgery to remove the ovaries because the chemo would shrink the cancer down and kill any lingering cells and then remove the ovaries and then do three more rounds. And then we could talk about getting pregnant someday. Or my other option was to do the surgery, go and see what's going on. And, and she was pretty certain that would entail a hysterectomy and then do six rounds of chemo following that, which would obviously mean I wouldn't able to have like carry a child and she said both were viable options and the one thing she cautioned me about was if I did the first option and tried to keep my uh, uterus that after I finished all of my chemo I would be on another pill-based chemo that would prevent me from safely getting pregnant so like it wouldn't be safe for the child or like to be pregnant while taking it and I would then have to wait even longer and it could be a couple of years And so to me, just seemed like, I don't know if I want to like keep this, the cancer in my body just so that I can carry this baby. I I didn't really even have to think about it too hard. It just seemed like the, the right thing I needed, I needed to do for me and to be a mom someday so that I could be here, whether it was like, no matter how I had the child, the best bet for me to be here for that child was to just have a full hysterectomy and then do the six rounds of chemo and hope that that would be enough to kill my cancer and and keep me alive. And so that's what I decided to do. That's a whole lot to process. 
for yeah. you guys. Yeah. And then trying to make these decisions while you're in a state of shock still. How long was the time frame from getting the actual cervical cancer diagnosis and moving forward with getting your chemo as well as possible hysterectomy? It was two weeks to the day of the biopsy to the hysterectomy and subsequent retrieval of and removal of all of the ovarian cancer. And two weeks later, I went in and she, you know, I, I just, here I am again, let's go through it. I had just gone through this, like go under anesthesia, wake up. It had been seven hours for her to go through my entire abdomen. It required like nine, seven to nine flu, uh, liters of fluid the time, um, but they removed. And when, when she got in there, she did find that my uterus did have ovarian cancer. Like my ovaries were like stuck together and they were stuck to my uterus. So there wouldn't have, like, it wouldn't have even been a viable option if we had chosen the first option to save my uterus. So I, I just like that decision was. Once she got in there, she would have had to remove it regardless. Yeah. 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 Whichever option you chose. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And so they found wow. cancer. The cancer had spread my ovaries, my uterus, my cervix. I didn't know you could remove a cervix, but they removed my cervix, my appendix, part of my liver, part of my diaphragm, uh, part of my colon had to be removed, a lymph node. She also like had to pull out all of, like my small intestines and she literally pulled out my intestines and was like going through it inch by inch to like make sure she wasn't missing like specks of cancer. And then she just like put everything back in. <laughs> so to say when I woke up, my body was in like complete shock is kind of an understatement, but it was, I was in the hospital for a week. Uh, I was in the ICU for three days and then like in just like a regular recovery room for four days, you know, so a total of a week I was there, but it was the most difficult, hardest experience of, and of my life. And I, I'm not the type of person that requires help from people. I don't need people to like be there to pick something up for me or help me walk from here to there. Like I'm a very independent person. So being very, you know, healthy and then being very dependent on the nurses and the staff and and the doctors was also just like a very emotionally difficult situation to be in because I had never been in that situation before. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When did you start your chemo? How long after the initial removal of the cancer on your organs? Did you start receiving the chemo? Great April Fool's joke. I thought, hey, this is not really going to happen. But yeah, my first um, treatment infusion was on April 1st. So about a month and a half-ish before. They just, you know, they needed to give me about six weeks to heal. Like the incision, because my incision goes from like my rib cage down to my pelvis. It's like 12 inches long. I had to really heal before they could go put me through chemo. It took 18 weeks. They, it was every three weeks I would go in and have a new infusion. And so that's a total of six. And so by the end of July, uh, yeah, like the end of July, I was done. Ooh, and you live to tell about it I, and write about it. Right? Yeah, I don't. That was never the intent. I'm, the living part was the intention. The writing about it wasn't. But I, yeah, I just felt like, wow, we have a story to tell. And, you know, there's obviously some more personal things that happened in that. And like, I, you know, I talk about what I thought chemo would be like and things that surprised me and things that happened and things that strengthened my relationship with my husband and things that I learned to just come to terms with, like able to allow yourself to be in the dark moments, but know that they're not going to last forever. So there are things I talk about in the book that you know, obviously I don't, I'm not sharing right now, but they're just very dear to, like near to my heart. And I hope that through that experience of 
both infertility and cancer can be something that other people read and say, oh, like I had no idea that this was how that went. Or, you know, I, I would hope that it could offer some help and hope to others who are faced with similar situations. And what would you say was the most hardest part during your recovery? And because your body's still physically healing from the cancer, you're still emotionally dealing with all these things. Like, I feel like you guys moved so quickly because you made a, a decision so quickly. Mm-hmm. And so, which I'm sure helped you um, feel in control too, in a way, because you were able to say when you were ready to, to, to move forward with your surgery right. and of course um, starting your chemo and then you're in the midst of chemo. I'm sure there was plenty of moments of despair when you didn't think you would be able to even get through that. I've seen a couple of people go through it and it's very tumultuous. So, yeah. oh my gosh, were there ever moments where you felt like you just, you like F all of this, like yeah. just F it all really. Yeah. And I told people that and I told myself that and yeah, there were times I wanted to give up and there were times that even even when I found that I was in remission and, you know, every every time I'd go into a new infusion, you'd do a new blood panel and they'd find out like what your numbers were and if you were if the chemo was working and, and very early like after the very first chemo, my chemo was working, it was killing the cancer and just everything was looking good. But there was always like I and I continue to feel a guilt it was hard. It was the hardest thing in my life that I've ever gone through. And I don't want to say like, why was it easy for me? But like, I do hear stories that other people go through and other patients that I talk to along the way where I was like, wow, I, people will always say to me, oh, I can't believe you, you know, you're so strong and you did this. And I'm like, well, yeah, there are people out there that I feel are way stronger than me and have it like way worse than I do. And I really tried to keep that perspective. And but it is also interesting. You just do what you have to do. People say you're strong. And yeah, like I am strong. I'm not diminishing that. I'm not saying that I didn't put up the fight and like really push through and and, and beat cancer because I'm a strong person. But you sometimes do want to diminish that and be like, well, I just kind of like did what I had to do to, to live and I had no other choice. So like if you were faced with the same thing, you would do it too, right? <laughs> I understand exactly what you mean because it's like, okay, yeah, you know innately that you're strong, but you don't want to wear it like a badge of honor and you don't really want to be praised for it either. Right. And, um, it feels very awkward when, when you hear those types of comments and you know that they mean well, but it still feels kind of awkward. And so when you had finished your six rounds of chemo, how long was it until you felt like you and hubby were ready to move forward or that you guys decided together to move forward with starting to build baby low again? I think that I'm very type A and I have to have something like I fixate on things. And so it's hard when like I, I was off work, I took a leave of absence so I could go through my treatment and there would be, there was a lot of time where I felt fine. Like I didn't feel great and I didn't feel good, but like I feel really crappy for like a week and a half and then I'd start to feel better. But so I I like needed to find something to like fixate on or to focus on so that I wasn't just going insane from not working and being sick. And so as we started to learn that the chemo was working and it was looking like things were positive, I, it was only after like the second infusion that I reached out on Facebook to our like friends and family and just said, Hey, you know, we're not forgetting the reason that I'm here today is because of Embrylo and we really still want to bring Embrylo into this world. And now that that's not, that I can't do it. And I know that now, um, we are interested in talking to people who might be interested in helping us at BS surrogacy and gestational carry. I made a post and we kind of started going down the, the route of like finding out what what the legal side of it was just, you know, we were just kind of testing the water, but it just kind of kept going. And it was like, as I was getting treated, I was finding out, I was spending time talking to our lawyers and and the fertility clinic. And I had a family member reach out at one point and say, I have always felt like I wasn't done growing our family, but I'm done growing my family because they had my, it was my brother and his wife and they had four kids. And they're like, we don't want any more kids, but like, I've just had this feeling that I want to like help grow this, our family as a whole. So she said, you know, when you found out about your diagnosis, like 
I, I'll be your surrogate if, if it's if everything aligns and if you find out you're healthy and like let's get past that hurdle but let's I, I will do it so we kind of went through all the motions as if uh, after my last chemo everything was going to be a-okay and it was like after I was deemed in remission um, I my sister-in-law was cleared to be our gestational carrier and we had someone to move forward to transfer Embrylo and it was really exciting and starting that process with my brother and his wife and kind of going through some of these like really detailed and intricate questions and very sensitive things that you know you talk about and have to decide up front when you're creating a surrogacy contract that I I had no idea what we're yeah, going to get ourselves yeah, it's into. It's very detailed. I've, I've yeah. Heard. yeah. And back of your mind, you're like, do I want a family member to do this? Could this complicate things? Or do I want to pay the astronomical amount of money that it can cost to just have it like a stranger carry and so many different routes you could go down. And it's just a lot to process and handle. And so it took several months for us to, you know, we, we came up with a contract with, you know, the things that she could and couldn't do while pregnant and food she couldn't eat or activities she could do just you know things that you just have to be very specific as it's weird to like put limitations on somebody and know that like they're not it's not your body but you're expecting somebody to treat it as if it is your body going through this pregnancy but in November of 2019 we were able to wake Embrylo up out of well, it was actually a nine-month nap in the freezer, and we transferred, and we found out two weeks later that we were pregnant, and we were just like, yes, 2019 is gonna, it started off rough, but we're, we're gonna end it on a really, really good note, but no, that's just not how life <laughs> goes. If only, yeah. if only we could get more of those yeah. moments consecutively. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I wish that that's where our story ended, but it's not. How were things going? The first trimester, she's been pregnant before, right at this point. Yeah. And so we're thinking this is, this is easy, breezy. She's gonna, yeah. she's gonna be able to do this. We can all do this. We're gonna get through it, right? Yeah. And so what goes, what goes on after this point? Found out she was pregnant, and then about. When she was about six weeks, we she called and we found out she had been having some bleeding. And so we called the doctors and they had her come in and they did an ultrasound and you know, we were we saw our baby and we saw the heartbeat and it was just like this little tiny image, but we saw it and it was there and uh, it was like re- relieving to see that. So they said, you know, you probably have a subchorionic hemorrhage, which is just when there's like a blood vessel on like it, you have a bleed right where the baby implanted and so they said just stay on off your feet and we'll just we'll we'll come back and test you in a couple of days and do another ultrasound and a few days later it was like a week later we went back in and did another ultrasound and unfortunately we found out that day that Embrylo was gone. So what are we doing at this point? Are we getting help for all these traumas that are happening so close together within a year's time span? And oh, yeah. We're just on the brink of COVID at this <laughs> yeah, point, yeah. right? Yeah, we didn't know that. I mean, there was a lot of uh, therapy and self-help and marriage therapy. And, you know, not that it was our marriage was in a bad place, but I think that James and I are very strong believers in just always trying to find ways to help each other be the best we can be and 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 get we just needed that because we couldn't all I couldn't always communicate to him what I needed while I was sick and it just definitely leaned on friends and family and therapy and we were just really sad I mean it just was sad because we lost a baby but then for me on top of that I had just lost my only ability to have a child with my DNA that was the only chance I'd have to have a biological child. So now, you know, not only was I mourning the loss of not being able to carry a child someday, it was like, I know that if I have a child someday, it's not going to be biologically tied to me. And that was really hard for me for a long time to, it bled into a lot of other things that happened. But, and I, I think that it, 
might be something that presents itself even in the future at a time where I'm not expecting it to as I go on from here on, you know, that that might be something that, there, you know, something cracks that surface and I go, whoa, like I didn't realize I wasn't over that or I wasn't, I wasn't certain, you know, I thought I had healed and I obviously haven't. Like, so I, I think that's just the part of grief is that you, a lot of people think like, okay, I'm going to grieve and I'm going to get over it. And it's just, I'm going to be fine after X amount of time. And that's just not, grief is just like, it can be lifelong and it can creep in and creep out at all different times of your life. What did the next steps look like for you then? Did you move forward with your family members, surrogacy again and IVF uh, retrievals? What, what was next? Embryo adoption? We could have embryo donation or we could just go down the path of adopting. I had these preconceived fears or or maybe just naivety of what adoption entailed and things about adoption. Truthfully, I was a little bit intimidated by the whole process. So that, that one was kind of like the option to the side that I thought, oh, like that might be our last resort because not even just my intimidation of it was the factor, but that I just, I wanted James to be able to have a biological child. I don't think that my circumstance should have removed his ability to have a biological child. Something I learned as well is if you, if you get donated embryos and you have them via a surrogate or gestational carrier, you have to go through the adoption process after that baby is born versus if you have an embryo that has one parent's DNA, you don't have to go through the adoption process. And so to me, like James was like, well, I, I'd be fine if you want to do embryo donation. And I, I said, yeah, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate that you can consider that as an option and that you're willing to go down that path. But the biggest factor for me was I did not want to take away his ability to have a biological child. And so the only option at that point would be to get egg donation. And we had a few people we knew say, I'll donate my eggs and which would have been fine. Like, I, I don't think we were against that option, but we ended up going through and finding an anonymous egg donor um, and going through, you know, a process that it was actually a really, really one of the most meaningful uh, connections and like stories that I talk about in the book of how we found this donor and like how that all kind of came together when we were searching is really like, I don't, I don't want to say we believe in fate or whatever, but it was like this very serendipitous fate moment where I was like, man, this, this is, this was meant to be. And so we, in January after, you know, we had taken Christmas time because it was right around Christmas that we lost Embrylo. We kind of took some time and then we went through egg donation and what that entailed was having the egg donor go through a cycle of IVF. And, you know, we never knew who she was. We, we had seen some pictures of her and she went through a cycle of IVF. And essentially when you do egg donation, you, you get eggs from an egg donor, you get to keep and fertilize all of the eggs that they retrieve from that cycle. And so we went through that process and there were, again, intricacies that I could never have foreseen or thought about or whatever through that, you know, that I talk about. But it was like in February, we found out we had gotten six viable embryos out of the process, out of the egg donation. So those were all frozen. We knew the gender. We got them genetically tested for chromosomal abnormalities. And at the end of the day, we knew we had five girls and one boy. And we just were really excited about this new chapter. And you had asked about moving forward with a surrogate or gestational carrier, whether it was family or friend. My sister-in-law had been very open about wanting to help us with Embrylo. And I think just the experience of going through a miscarriage, having never gone through that before, I, I think that was very traumatic for her and rightfully so. And she had been open about, you know, if it doesn't work, I don't know if I would want to do it again. Cause also I think in the back of her mind, she's like, if it doesn't work, I don't want you to do it again. And maybe it doesn't work again. Like that's fine. Like I'm not 
I wasn't, we weren't upset about that. We were just happy to have had that experience with her to begin with. So we went to Facebook, James uh, posted on Facebook and he just said, this is where we're at. And you guys have all been so great and supportive over the last year through everything we've been through and through Jenny's cancer, through the, the loss of Embry Low. We're looking for a new surrogate. We have we have new embryos and we are we want to still be parents. And so he makes this post and it was like within 30 minutes we had somebody that said, I will help you. Like if if I'm a candidate, I would love to help you. And it was a girl that um, a woman that James had gone to high school with and we had followed her journey through some fertility issues of her own and you know, so she was a little concerned she wouldn't be a viable candidate. If, if I'm a viable candidate, I would love to help you. And we had another person that offered and, and it, it ended up coming down to like, we chose this woman, this first woman, because it, her in, insurance, sometimes that can help reduce the costs immensely of like the insurance companies just paying for this pregnancy as if it's your, we didn't have this extra cost because someone else was carrying our child, if that makes sense. I mean, we had costs, but not insurance wise. So as that's all happening, COVID hit. And so we were like, oh crap, like what is going to happen here? And we were worried that all, you know, the fertility clinics were going to shut down and not allow us to move forward. But again, it just, things just kind of kept moving and she got cleared to be our gestational carrier. And we had like the first couple of conversations we had with her and her husband were over Zoom because we were all quarantining and not able to be around each other. But we did finally meet in person and we had already gone through all this just recently, like with the legal stuff and the, the therapy, whatever. So it was very fresh for us. So it, it just was like a very seamless transition to working with her and her husband. And they just were so, so wonderful and helpful to us and gracious. And so in June of 2020, fun story of how we chose which embryo we were going to have. And part of me always thought, okay, if I can't have my own child and it can't, I can't carry it, I want it to be a boy. We ended up doing this special that where we choose the embryo. And as all of this is happening, all through my treatment and all through my cancer and through all the infertility stuff, the the idea and the concept of hope, just always having hope and keeping hope and being hopeful through really hard times, it just kept coming up. And people didn't know that like, when they'd say that to us, it was like, they were like the fifth or sixth person to say it. And people would gift us things about having hope and being hopeful and it's crazy the, the different things that are connected to hope. And so we transfer our embryo and we, we pick the embryo we're going to use. We transfer in June of 2020. And when we find out we're pregnant, we decide to do like a little gender reveal because we didn't know, we didn't know which embryo was transferred, but we do a gender reveal and we find out that we're having a little girl. And rather than being like, oh man, I'm not having a little boy. I was like, yes, I'm going to, I am so excited. And the second we said we were having a girl, James and I looked at each other and we said, her name is Hope. And the, the last part of the book talks about our journey to, through that pregnancy and some things that kind of came up along the way with my health that weren't a big deal, but they, you know, think just some more health things that I had to go through really two reasons that I named the book that I wrote Saved by Hope. And one of them is because I was saved by mm. hope. Like if, you know, you think, oh, you were saved by Embry Low, but no, like I was saved by this child that is in my life and she's here because of all the things that we went through to get here. And if I hadn't gone on, if I hadn't gone through all of those things, like I wouldn't have found my cancer and I wouldn't be here today. And if people hadn't, continue to like pump the idea of hope into my mind as I went through this whole journey I wouldn't be here and so that's one of the main reasons that I named uh, the book Saved by Hope and you'll just have to read the book to know what the other reason is and any connection I ever worried that we wouldn't have because we don't share DNA gone out the window and all I can say at the end of the day is that there was no question 
about the connection that her and I have have and continue to share to this day. Yeah, it's been a journey from every aspect, but I feel so lucky and fortunate to be here. And I just really wanted to share our story because there are just so many things I learned along the way about myself, about the processes, about uh, infertility, about cancer, about surrogacy, about just advocating for your health as, as females, like advocating for your breast health and your, your reproductive health and just for yourself. If you, if you feel something isn't right, or you feel that you need to speak up, then you need to do that because you're the only person that can for yourself. And you answered the question will be my next one. And that is the last word for our friends, but you've done that so well and so eloquently and just thank you for letting <laughs> yeah. us into your world and sharing with us the most deeply, deeply personal health yeah. trials that you've had in the last couple of years and doing all of this right yeah, now. Yeah, little smack dab of COVID. And wow, it's just uh, remarkable what we what we can get through. And unfortunately, uh, not everybody lives to tell about it, but uh, I know that your your story will help so many people because you have so many different layers to your story that there's a little bit for everybody. And um, so we appreciate you, appreciate you. And so let us know where we can find your book, girl. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be on Amazon and it's on, yeah, it's on Amazon, Saved by Hope. It'll be available audiobook, ebook, paperback. I just am very anxious and excited to share the story with others. And I, I hope that it can offer a little bit of hope to everybody that needs a little bit of hope to, to move forward. Well, That's our friend Jenny. We appreciate you, girl, again, for coming on and sharing with us your story. And it was my pleasure to be able to hold space for you to uh, tell your story audibly like this. And thank you for reaching out and and being willing to do so. It takes a lot to be able to relive these moments. And so I don't take it for granted that that you have allowed yourself to uh, be here with us today and to give us your time. So we thank you, friends, too, for tuning in, for listening. Do share this episode and pass it along to someone who needs a bit of hope and inspiration outside of yourself. And you guys know where to find me at Infertility and Me Podcast on the gram. Peace and blessings. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.